Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Voices of Conscience in an Ethical Perspective. Today's Town Hall Forum is originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis. My name is Mary Beth Kohler, and I will be moderating the forum. Today's speaker is Carolyn Jefferson Jenkins, President of the League of Women Voters of the United States. Her topic today is bridging bridge building in a divided culture, can we really talk to each other? We live in an increasingly small world of many cultures. Today's forum explores the real and perceived barriers to communication and looks at ways to overcome these barriers. Dr. Jefferson Jenkins looks at the differences as well as at the commonality of Americans today. She believes that civil discourse strengthens a democracy and that is, it is important to acknowledge the words, traditions, and stereotypes which exist in individuals and communities today. Such acknowledgement is the first step towards understanding. Dr. Carolyn Jefferson Jenkins is the 15th president of the League of Women Voters of the United States and the first African-American to head the organization. She is the author of several publications, including The Road to Black Suffrage and One Man, One Vote. Dr. Jefferson Jenkins has worked in education for more than 20 years, serving as adjunct professor at Colorado Christian University and as a teacher and principal in the Cleveland school system. Please welcome Carolyn Jefferson Jenkins. Thank you, Mary Beth, for such a wonderful introduction, and good afternoon to you all. I'd like to thank the Westminster Forum and the McKnight Foundation for providing me the opportunity to speak to you today. I'd also like to acknowledge the efforts of coordinator Susan Fetterbush. I would be remiss if I did not recognize the many League members, friends, and supporters who are in the audience today. For 79 years, the League of Women Voters has been a voice for citizens and a force for change. We are a nonpartisan political organization that encourages the informed and active participation of citizens in government and influences public policy through education and advocacy. The League represents more than 130,000 members and supporters through its 1,100 local leagues, 50 state leagues, the District of Columbia, and the Virgin Islands. Today, the League continues to empower citizens to register to vote. We defend voting rights, we open government to citizens, and we train tomorrow's civic leaders. We will be, continue to be proud of our role as the foremost defenders of democracy today. For those of you who are interested, you may obtain additional information about the League and its work by visiting our website on the World Wide Web at lwv.org or by contacting us at our toll-free number, 1-800-249-VOTE. I have a question for you this afternoon before I begin my prepared remarks. What do the remote control, garage door opener, and computer mouse have in common? With a single click, they each bring the world within our grasp. With that same click, they isolate us from every other person who we might have a conversation with. Think about that as you listen to my remarks today. I offer as my topic this afternoon, bridge building in a divided culture. Can we really talk to each other? The more appropriate question might be, can we afford not to talk to each other? As a subtopic, civil discourse, politics, and the community that we live in. Our democracy works best when we have the kind of active and informed public conversations that engage all citizens about the issues. Regardless of their differing opinions, regardless of their differing experiences, regardless of their differing backgrounds. Civil discourse, politics, and community form a triumvirate. It is my hope that my remarks this afternoon will not only guide your future discussions about civil discourse, but will also motivate you to accept your responsibility as the gatekeepers of our political future. 
We need to move beyond the differences and focus on our commonalities. So while my remarks are focused on public conversations and public discourse, the tenets that I will be talking about are applicable to all conversations that we should be having in our daily lives. We know that in order to have an atmosphere conducive to civil discourse, we must have knowledge, we must respect the opinions of others, and we must act. Civil discourse, as it occurs in politics and in our communities, is learned behavior, and it's learned in the context of what we refer to as civility. Civility provides the foundation for the kinds of conversation that bring about change. The fact that you are attentive demonstrates to me your predisposition for civility, and on behalf of everybody who's going to stand before you, thank you. Before I begin my prepared remarks, I want you to indulge me for a moment and just reflect on where you learned civility, the rules of conversation. I was taught by my parents and in church and in school and reinforced in the community that children should be seen and not heard, that we are to respect our elders, that we should not speak when others are speaking, that we should not overstay our welcome, and that we should always say please and thank you and most importantly, the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. Where did you learn your rules of civility? In a way, this says it all. These are the tenets that, that I grew up with. And if we applied the last rule, do unto others as you would have others do unto you in our daily lives, there would be no incivility. Or would there? Unfortunately for many of us, as we look at the, the people who are around us in our daily lives, they live by the credo of the current television talk show, pick a talk show, any talk show. Clearly, it's the opposite of being polite and courteous. Today, a different standard seems to govern how we view civil discourse. This different standard impacts both politics and community, all aspects of community. So here we sit on the brink of a new millennium, pondering the topic of civility in our conversations about politics, about community, about diversity, about the common good. I want to do three things in my prepared remarks. The first is to frame the debate of whether civil discourse can or should exist. Secondly, I want to share with you the League's response to the current state of affairs. And third, I'm going to issue a call to action. I'm going to challenge each one of you in this audience to go out and make sure that you see yourselves as change agents. To begin the frame the, the debate on whether civil discourse does or can exist, we need to take a step back and look at the historic context. Historically, civil discourse has taken many forms, most notably town meetings. Aristotle argued in the fourth century BC that democracy could not work in a country larger than a small city-state such as Athens. One reason was that in a democracy, all citizens should be able to assemble in one place to hear a speaker. Thus, the range of the human voice limited democracy's size. As late as the mid-18th century, political thinkers of the stature of Montesquieu and Rousseau continued to echo this conventional wisdom and argue against the possibility of a large-scale democracy. After the birth of the United States, a huge democracy by historical standards, such arguments were discredited. But as evidence mounts that the United States democratic system is moving farther away from the democratic ideal, it's easy to wonder if the pre-modern thinkers weren't really on to something. George Washington even addressed the issue of civility. In the late 19th century, there was a school notebook of his that was discovered at Mount Vernon, and it apparently dated back to 1745. It was in his own handwriting, and it was entitled, 110 Rules of Civility and Conversation Amongst Men. On the assumption that what was good enough for the first president of the United States is good enough for the rest of us, here are a few of Washington's rules of civility. One, every action in company ought to be with some sign of respect to those present. Show not yourself glad at the misfortune of another, though he were your enemy. Let your discourse with men of business be short and comprehensive. Let your conversation be without malice or envy for it is a sign of tractable and commendable nature, and in all causes of passion, admit reason to govern. We need to restore a measure of civility to the broken discourse on issues. 
civil discourse must be informed and active. Over the last 200 years, new information technologies have significantly transformed the possibilities and practice of democracy. For example, the early 19th century invention of the penny press for printing newspapers made acquisition of political information by the masses both convenient and affordable. This in turn greatly facilitated the extension of suffrage during that period. Later, the advent of television weakened the traditional political party system and led to the growing influence of media in elections. The electronic town meeting or interactive teleconferencing has now replaced the town meeting of the past. Today, while the same methods are available, our technological advances make civil discourse take on an entirely new meaning. Think back, garage door opener, remote control, mouse. Whether it is labeled correctly or not, civil discourse takes place every day. It takes place in the form of complaints and opinion sharing, which we do with our spouses, our family, our friends, our coworkers. The problem is everybody has an opinion, not everybody has the facts. Our challenge is to translate these public conversations, this discourse, into active civic participation. Participation that will ultimately lead to the common good. According to a widely quoted study by the Kettering Foundation entitled Citizens in Politics, A View from Main Street, Americans are both frustrated and downright angry about the state of the current political system. They do not believe that we the people, all people, actually rule. What is more, people do not believe that this system is able to solve the pressing problems that they face. Skeptics argue that civil discourse, the political rules of the game, in the United States are, are rigged in favor of the rich, the well-born, and the well-educated. Perhaps the early political thinkers simply got the maximum democratic size wrong. Instead of being 5,000 or 20,000 or even 100,000, maybe it really is 275 million. Convinced that large-scale democracy was impossible, the early political thinkers surely would have had little trouble identifying at least part of America's main governmental problem, its growing size and complexity. Over the last 200 years, America's population has grown from 3 million to a projected 275 million. At the same time, the size and complexity of the government has grown exponentially. In 1831, there were only 11,000 federal employees Today, there are millions. As government grows larger and more complex, it's harder to keep it accountable. And as the proportion of citizens to representatives increases, citizens have even less incentive to try and keep it accountable. The development of mass media, such as newspapers and television, has helped alleviate these problems. The maximum range of a politician's message is no longer the hundreds of thousands within the range of voice, but the tens of millions who can watch television or the growing millions who can access the internet. Similarly, the mass media usually offers better and more convenient political news than could word of mouth. But I would argue that this information is open to more interpretation, reinterpretation, and eventually overinterpretation. The United States continues to have democratic ideals, but not an informed and engaged electorate to act upon these ideals. The result is a government that neither knows or implements the public will. There are, of course, non-technology-based approaches to solving our democratic woes. For example, we might instill a better sense of civic duty in our schools or overhaul campaign finance laws in order to minimize the influence of special interest groups. A more fundamental approach might be to use information technologies to transcend the inherent historic limitations of democracy. So in moving from today's industrial age democracy to tomorrow's information age democracy, both direct and mediated democracy can and should be enhanced. Technology facilitates new forms of voting and thus encourages direct participation. With more convenient and less expensive voting, people could be expected to vote more frequently and on more issues. Several years ago, as the internet was in its infancy, the League of Women Voters leaders from California and Washington recognized the new communication possibilities and began experimenting with the internet as a tool for publishing election information. The early work of these volunteers enabled the League to export and test software programs. 
One of the interesting phenomena that happened in the 1998 election cycle was that the first week that we were up and running, we only got about 50,000 hits, which is not a lot uh, if you're an internet user. The days prior to the election, immediately prior to the election, it increased to 200,000 per day. So the need for information is out there, and the fact that people are using these technologies is there. We had 14 pilot sites, and the leagues devoted anywhere from 800 to 2,500 volunteer hours to bring this information service to citizens in their communities. This network enables us to collect and produce something that no other national organization could. In the future, we will develop the League of Women Voters Democracy Network, which will include an ongoing evolution of technology that will bring citizens closer to elected officials, so citizens can now fully not only, not only know who's running for president, but know who's running for council. They can browse an issues grid and in that way interact with their elected officials. But to go back a little bit to history, the Bill of Rights together with the Constitution defines the relationship between government and citizens in a representative democracy. Each generation must make its own commitment to protect that relationship, which is at the heart of this democratic system. At the end of the 20th century, what we're seeing is that this generation has chosen technology as the conduit for that relationship. Since it's we who determine the success of representative government, how do we do this? By holding our government accountable, by taking part in debates that affect our lives, by engaging in the process of decision making, by speaking out, by working for the changes we believe in? Or do we do it by remaining vigilant, by exercising our First Amendment rights and participating in the democratic process, by using civil discourse to reconnect politics and community? Reasoned discourse is essential as a means of distinguishing between sound ideas and absurdity. Civil discourse is a sign of civic stamina or perseverance in civic virtue. We then need to remind ourselves that the political arena is the place in which we continuously work out our understanding of the way of life we share and how that understanding will be realized in the policies we adopt. So if we accept the tenets that have been discussed, what do we do? What does it take for democracy to work as it should for all people? This is a question that the League is asking with increasing frequency these days. And it's a question to which there are many answers, though surely one of them is that it takes a responsible citizenry, able to make sound choices about both national and local policies. To help citizens make sound choices, the League is reviving one of the oldest traditions in our country, the tradition of public deliberation, the tradition of civil discourse. We are creating new versions of the forums that throughout our history have enabled us to deliberate as a group before we voted or took action on the issues of the day. These are real town meetings where citizens try to make collective decisions deliberative forums that provide a rare opportunity for people to talk and reason together. As President of the League of Women Voters of the United States, I'm pleased to share with you this afternoon that not only do we know what we need to do, we've crafted a strategic focus that will guide us there. We have the experience, the energy, the desire, and the drive to make this happen. And we challenge you to join us in this effort. American democracy, indeed democracy worldwide, is at a critical juncture. American citizens feel angry and shut out of the democratic process. The sense of community and collaborative problem solving has all but vanished as people have lost faith in government. The League believes that the key to making this democracy work lies in empowering citizens, and the League is currently in the process of retooling itself to do just that. We know that democracy is founded on the belief in the common good. As more people opt out of the process and some people are denied access, the concept of the common good is eroded rather quickly. In a participatory democracy, citizens must have access to information and access to the process. The League is working on four major projects to fulfill this promise of democracy. Project Citizen. We will be reconnecting citizens with government, building civic participation at home and abroad, and reaffirming the necessary role of government. Project Voter. We'll be enhancing voter participation efforts, informing and motivating voters, making elections relevant to all citizens. 
project diversity, engaging the disengaged, including all voices in our civic life, increasing the diversity of representation. Our elected bodies should reflect the demographics of the nation that they represent. Project reform, to pass the reforms needed to ensure government responsiveness to citizen interest, making the system work for citizens, leveling the playing field for candidates, and strengthening the democratic process. What issues and priorities then should be at the top of our agenda now as we seek to advocate in the public interest? Our legislative priorities for the 106th Congress include the passage of campaign finance reform, protection for the National Voter Registration Act, known as Motor Voter, increasing voter participation initiatives, and working toward full congressional voting rights for the District of Columbia. And for those of you who, who are familiar with that, you live in the District of Columbia, you do not have voting rights. Congress determines what goes on, and there is no voting, congressional voting right for the district. The immediate priority, of course, is civic participation and preparation for election 2000. So as the League of Women Voters advocates for its mission to encourage the informed and active participation of citizens in government, we know that achieving that mission is an essential step in addressing the critical issues facing the country. Citizen participation is the thread that holds together our political system's ability to serve the common good. And it is also a thread that is currently very frayed and in danger of breaking. The League is in a position to help restore the connection between citizen participation and offer solutions to the challenges we face as a nation. In the last presidential election, millions of citizens stayed home on election day. In order to change those numbers this year, the League is conducting a survey on the barriers to civic participation, which will be released later this summer. This survey will serve as a companion piece to the 1996 survey of voters and non-voters. And one of the key findings of that 1996 survey was that there was a link between an individual's social and community connections and their voting behavior. Armed with this information and our well-known determination, we're going to be working to increase civic participation and voter participation. And we're going to send a clear message to the political parties, the candidates, the media, and citizens across the country that the outcome of any election will affect everyone. It will affect our jobs, our health care, our retirement, our children's education, and the safety of our streets, our future. The League will be meeting people where they are and getting them the information they need. And building on our 79 years of experience, we'll be working in communities across the country to address the need for more information about the voting process and holding elected officials accountable. And because personal contact is so important, we'll be engaging in intensive canvassing and grassroots mobilization efforts. And those efforts include a special focus on underrepresented populations, assistance to local leagues in designing innovative and effective ways to mobilize the communities at the grassroots level, and conducting national training conferences. We are initiating a massive Get Out the Vote campaign in collaboration with a number of other organizations. We'll be hosting dialogues throughout the nation and comprehensive work with, in coalition with other organizations. To engage citizens in these new public conversations, we must be mindful of the importance of that task. There cannot be a time in this nation where there will be nothing more to discuss or debate. While new technologies have been a paradox, they broadened opportunity to access information and they minimize the direct connection that we have, the in-person relationships with elected officials and with each other. And these in-person relationships are so vital to civil discourse. So over the next 20 years, many experts believe that information technology may change more than it ever has how the democratic system of government works. These new technologies facilitate previously impractical forms of democratic deliberation, but they also isolate us from each other. If this trend continues, we will move away from the direct democracy and move toward a more mediated democracy. Again, questions emerge. What would the framers of the Constitution think? Do we really care? If the media becomes even more important in the political process, it's vital that the public has the right to know as much about the media as they do about politicians. If we continue with such close scrutiny for political office, do we always get the best candidates or do we deter them because of personal attack? According to polls in Ohio and the state of Washington where the League worked with an organization um, 
called the Institute for Global Ethics, we attempted to get candidates to sign a campaign code of conduct. We found from a survey that people were more willing to vote for candidates if they felt that they would be fair with each other in their deliberations and conversations. I can't tell you of the complications that arose in trying to get candidates to agree on the rules of conduct in their deliberations. So even though that was an, uh, a challenging and uh, unique experience, we're hoping to take the, the tenets that we learned from that and replicate that throughout the nation. These campaign code of conduct were guiding principles, simply rules of engagement that candidates would abide by during the campaign. And in Ohio, we only were able to get the secretaries of state candidates to sign, not the other major candidates. New public policies, as we look at them, are necessary to facilitate new forms of democracy that, that may be possibly emerging. And it's important to recognize that tolerance is going to be one of the key assets that we're going to need. We live in an increasingly small world of many and varied cultures, but we live in an increasingly isolated world as well. While our experiences may be different, we need to focus on our commonalities. I invite you to consider the propositions acknowledged today and to improve on them, not to agree or disagree hastily, but to enter into a conversation about how our democracy should conduct itself. Where do you stand? And more importantly, why? As George Washington wrote in his 110 Rules of Civility, undertake what you cannot perform, but be careful to keep your promise. Sometimes the simplest wisdom can be the most profound. And as a former educator, I was always intrigued by Robert Fulgham's um, precis, all I ever really needed to know, I learned in kindergarten. How appropriate to the civil discourse and the public deliberations that we're gonna be having in the near future. So I wanna read some of this to you. Share everything, play fair, don't hit people, Put things back where you found them. Clean up your own mess. Don't take things that aren't yours. Say you're sorry when you hurt somebody. Wash your hands before you eat. And my favorite, flush. Take a nap every afternoon. When you go out into the world, watch for traffic. Hold hands and stick together. Beware of wonder. He concludes by saying, Think of what a better world it would be if we all had cookies and milk at about three o'clock every afternoon and then lay down on our blankets for a nap. And it's still true, no matter how old you are, when you go out into this world, it's best to hold hands and stick together. This is how we build bridges in a divided culture. This is how we talk to each other. This is what democracy is. This is what makes democracy work. And this is your call to action. Thank you. We thank you, Dr. Jefferson Jenkins. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum in downtown Minneapolis. I am Mary Beth Kohler, moderator of today's forum. Our speaker today is Carolyn Jefferson Jenkins, who has just spoken on the topic of bridge building in a divided culture. Can we really talk to each other? While the ushers collect the questions from our audience here, I would like to take this opportunity to thank the sponsors of today's Westminster Town Hall Forum, the McKnight Foundation, and the Minnesota League of Women Voters. I also want to remind you that the next Westminster Town Hall Forum will be Thursday, May 20th. Our speaker will be David Breshear, the climber, author, and filmmaker who captured the ascent of Mount Everest for the IMAX film of the same title. Dr. Jefferson Jenkins, if you will return to the podium, we will begin the questions. I have a question 
prepared by uh, members of the League of Women Voters while we wait for questions from the audience to be sorted and uh, handed forward. The first one is, if we are to increase voter turnout among underrepresented groups, what specific steps can we take to make everyone, including the less wealthy and people of color, feel that they have a stake in what is going on in government and that their participation is needed? Thank you. To increase voter participation among underrepresented groups is one of the things that we take seriously. And in 1996, we had a massive get out the vote uh, campaign with the league nationally. I personally had the opportunity to be a part of that campaign and found that the old fashioned personal contact grassroots mobilizing efforts were the most effective. I had the opportunity to do a precinct walk in Santa Cruz, California, a neighborhood of new immigrants. It was a very humbling experience for me. Uh, these were people who had already registered to vote, but had no intention of participating in the system. It was that personal contact, that one-on-one -on -one interaction, knocking on doors and sharing with people the importance of voting that made a difference in many of their decisions. And we found that in that particular precinct, we had a 13% increase in voter participation. Secondly, for those people who don't feel that they have a part in government, I do a lot of assemblies for 18-year-olds in high school who say, I'd never participate in government. And I always find one sacrificial lamb. And I have that person stand up and ask them to empty their pockets. And I said, OK, you have money in your pocket. Somebody made a decision about that. You have an ID. Somebody made a decision about that. You're sitting in a public building. Somebody made a decision about that. So you participate whether it's active or inactive. If you choose to be inactive, I love it because I choose to be active and I'm going to make the following decisions. And th then they have to step back and think for a while. So what we learned in 1996 and what we're going to be in 1998 and what we're going to be um, advocating in 2000 is the personal context, challenging everyone to participate, having conversations with people. Uh, those things that work, if you're interested in, in mobilizing, to find out in every community, there's what I call a micro leader. There's somebody in that community who knows everything that's going on and has the respect of people in that community. You need to work with those people. And the league will be working in collaboration with a number of groups. Uh, we are targeting young people. We are targeting underrepresented um, minorities, African-Americans, Hispanics, Asian-Americans. We al also have a major project uh, with our Native American population in Oklahoma. Uh, we're, that we're targeting, and we're also targeting those people who just don't see themselves as part of the system. So we're using the tried and true methods to help us increase. Thank you. We have a couple questions uh, regarding the internet, and uh, you referenced that in your speech. Um, one says that uh, the internet not only isolates individuals, but also allows for individuals to find those with common ideas and organize around those ideas. Most notably, hate groups are growing in, in their numbers. What do we or can we do about this? The internet is, is a paradox. Um, if it's unmediated, and as we all know, there's something that can appear on the internet that will, if repeated enough, becomes fact. And so somehow we have to be able to capture the true, nonpartisan, credible information and disseminate that. Uh, what the League has, is doing in its democracy network is serving as the facilitator of the discussion. And because of its nonpartisan stance and, and its credibility within the community, we're able to do that. We can't really control everything that's on the Internet. And those of you who surf the Internet know that there's a lot of junk on there that you really don't need to have. But what we need to do is use these new technologies to engage people. And if we don't, we're going to be left behind. So we recognize the importance of that, and we're going to be stepping out front with some cutting-edge kinds of things through our democracy network that will help people get the kinds of information that they need. Okay. America is becoming increasingly diverse. Some of our schools deal with children who speak several different languages and whose parents come from countries whose political systems are much different from ours. How do we create a common understanding of how America's democratic system of government works? It's an interesting question because, with the exception of Native Americans, 
this is a country of immigrants. So this is not a new phenomena that's happening. What we need to do, again, is to reflect and, and look back at the things that made us strong in the beginning. We're always going to have people coming in. Um, as a former civics teacher, one of my pet peeves is that civics is always one of those classes that's taken out of the school. So we, we need to begin to educate at a younger age. We need to begin to have family conversations about what's going on in our communities. We need to have community conversations. We need to have activities where people are getting the information that they need. One of uh, the goals of the league with all of the information that we're giving now and recognizing that there are a lot of immigrants in this country is to take the information where people are. Right now we're expecting people to come to us. And so where are people? They're in the malls, they're in the airports, they're in the hospitals, they're at work, but we're not there. And that's where we need to be. If, it's, if things are accessible and easy for people to, in a non-threatening environment, get the information that they need, they will do that. And that, that starts at a young age, but it's intergenerational. And it's got to be conversations between people and within families. Uh, building on the um, idea of civil discourse, uh, this question says, do you believe gender impacts our inclination to be civil in our discourse it seems as if women are usually more civil. Comment, and it says, P.S., I am a man. <laughs> Thank you, whoever wrote that question. <laughs> women tend to have those negotiation, mediation, soft skills, because in most families, they're the ones that do the mediation, negotiation, and, and the nurturing. Um, we seem to be more collaborative than competitive in, in dealing with issues. So what we need to do is to take those skills and make those universal skills. And we do that in a, in a variety of venues. But we need to make all of those skills universal skills and not have it a gender-based kind of uh, activity. But the other thing I want to note is that women are the majority of voters now. So uh, politicians need to take heed of that. What are some practical ways to get people to hold hands, as you said, when there is such growing economic and class divisions? That is probably going to be one of our greatest challenges, and I'll give you a personal experience. I, I do a lot of traveling, so I use the airports and airplanes as my laboratory to observe people and behaviors. And I am just as guilty of this as, as many people are. But I looked on in the airport yesterday and on the plane, nobody was saying anything to anybody else. You sit in your seat and you look straight ahead. Even if the plane is packed, rarely, do people say things to each other? In the airport, everybody's just going about their own business. What are the rules that we're not familiar with in this game that are keeping us from talking to each other? There's something that's prohibiting us from saying something to the person next to us. And what I've found is that the only time people say anything to each other is when there's a crisis. If that plane's about to go down, you'll introduce yourself to the person sitting next to you. If there's a child in the airport who's about to be run over by one of the little carts, people start talking to each other. Why are we waiting for a crisis to have to talk to each other? What I would do is challenge each of you, as I am challenging myself, to talk to one other person that I don't know. Most of you, I would hazard to guess, who came in here today sat with people that you knew. Or you sat by yourself. And we, none of us made an effort to get up and meet somebody different. It, it's going to take the first step by each of us to make that difference. And we can't wait for somebody else to take the first step. We've got to take it ourselves. James Mishner, in his final book, nonfiction book, This Proud Land, predicts an end of our democratic system by 2050. Do you agree? I probably would disagree because I guarantee you in the 1700s, people may have predicted the end of our democratic system. The Constitution is such a dynamic document, and the, the process that we're involved in is so dynamic that it's flexible enough to survive everything that's going on. And it will survive, and as I said in my comments, each generation has to forge their own relationship with this democracy. So it'll be around. It may not be in the same form that we see it right now, but it's always gonna be around. Hopefully. <laughs> in the last election, thousands of new voters showed up at the polls. What are your suggestions for keeping those new voters involved and engaged? The new voters that showed up had an initial interest and a motivation to be involved. Organizations like the League, 
our schools, our churches will have to keep people involved by those conversations. People want something to do. So for as much as our time is valuable to us and limited, we all still realize that we are part of this whole larger order of things. And in order to keep them engaged, again, people are going to have to reach out. Our elected officials are going to have to talk to people. When I did the precinct walk at, that I referred to earlier in Santa Cruz, most of those people had never even seen their council person. Just saw the name on the ballot. We've got to do a better job of the person-to-person -person relationship and not let the garage door openers and the remote controls and the mouses keep us from talking to people. Here's an interesting uh, question about civil discourse uh, and its meaning. You said civil discourse must be informed and civil. That definition is viewed quite differently by those in the minority and those in the majority. Who is to decide civility? When should discourse and protests stop? Two questions. Okay, two questions. Who's to uh, decide on what civility is? I made a reference earlier to the rules of the game. Civility is decided by the rules that we agree upon for the common good. We don't live as individuals in a society, and we can't do those kinds of things that are harmful to other people in this society. What we try to do in Ohio and in Washington in, in trying to get this whole issue of civility brought to the fore is to have the actual candidates set their own guidelines that they were going to abide by. And the person who asked the question is right. It was very difficult to get them to agree. Because we come from such varying backgrounds and experiences, it's difficult to decide what rules we're going to play this game by. And I would say that I have no specific answer for that right now, but it's got to be negotiated between those parties involved. What was the second part of the question? I'm sorry. The, this, um, it is, um, when should discourse and protest stop? Um, discourse and protest are not the same terms in my estimation. Uh, discourse is that conversation that takes place that may in fact be in the form of protest, but it also could be in the form of debate. And we can have rigorous and vigorous debate, and we can agree to disagree and still do what's best for this nation and for the people involved. Okay. Uh, can you elaborate on what you mean by mediated democracy? Mediated democracy is that democracy that occurs when my only source of information about what's going on is the three seconds that I leave it on any channel to hear what's in the news. Somebody else is interpreting information and telling me what I need to know without me doing the research. And if I choose to believe that, then I'm allowing other people to mediate what is going on in my decision-making process. Here's a question that has to do with the concept of fairness or common good, how long will the concept of common good survive when one in seven of our men of color have lost the right to vote due to a felony conviction? Please comment. It's an interesting question, and I, as president of the League of Women Voters, uh, sit on the executive committee of the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights, and that is one of the issues that the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights is dealing with. There is and a disenfranchisement process is taking place as a result of the fact that many states do not allow uh, convicted felons to vote. Through the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights, we are advocating for uh, legislation that would allow people, given uh, certain circumstances and, of course, based on what the states agree to do, would allow people to vote. We don't want to disenfranchise citizens. The League supports the fact that all citizens should be able to participate in the process. Can we really talk with each other when our religious views collide with others? We should be able to talk to each other regardless of how our views collide on any host of issues. And um, at growing up, religion, politics, religion and politics were the two topics that people tried to avoid. And race now has become one of those issues that people has, have tried to avoid. We should be able to talk about anything. We don't have to agree with each other. We don't even have to like what our views are. But if we don't sit down and have those conversations, if we are always just doing superficial kinds of things, we will never get to the heart of what the issues are in this country. I have heard an ethicist speak to the effect that there are times when civil discourse is insufficient. Indeed, an ethical person must move beyond words to forceful actions. 
such as the civil rights movement. Your comments? I would agree. Uh, if, if you'll recall, I said that not only do we need to have the conversations, but we need to act. We need to be agents of change. We need to constantly uh, be finding ways to make things better. So I would agree with that comment. Can you share a personal experience when the miracle of civil discourse broke through in the midst of a very uncivil or volatile situation? I can share a personal experience. And actually, it's related to a, a very near and dear issue, Medicare. The, the League just had an opportunity to do over 300 community dialogues on Medicare. And some of those dialogues became very heated. When you begin to talk about whether people have to make a choice between buying groceries and getting prescription drugs, that issue uh, becomes an emotional kind of issue with people. What we found in the midst of that, when we got to the point where there was no agreement in the room and people uh, began to, to deal on an emotional level more than anything else, we found that by giving them some factual information, by providing them with information, it refocused the conversation. And by the end of that particular dialogue session, people could come to some agreement and prioritize what kind of recommendations they wanted to make. And, and I would say those kinds of facilitation skills and, and dialoguing and providing people with information sometimes turns the whole conversation around. We all want to have our opinions heard. But sometimes the facts will allow us to step back and, re and reflect on what it is we're saying and then at least be able to say to other people, I understand where you're coming from. I don't have to like it, but at least I understand it. Does the League of Women Voters, um, as an organization, support the encouragement of our senators, representatives, and our present president to pay all present and past dues to the, U the USAOs to the United Nations? That is one of our legislative priorities for this biennium. Of course we do. We are advocating and lobbying for the U.S. to pay its U.N. arrears, and we know how important that is. Can you be more specific about how groups such as the League can begin to facilitate groups to discuss their commonalities and differences? Okay. The League has a, a long history of training grassroots activists. We are in the process now of working with a number of community-based organizations and community-based leaders to train them on the facilitation skills that they can use in generating the kind of dialogues that need to take place within specific communities. We know as an organization, um, oftentimes, not only our organization, but many organizations want to go into a particular community and tell people what to do. You can't do that. What you need to do is work with the people who are in that community and train their leaders and, and provide the resources and the support that's necessary to have the dialogues take place on the level where they need to take place. So specifically, we are going to be training in 30 states community-based leaders and activists to facilitate the kinds of dialogues that need to take place. We are also going to be using technology to enhance the kinds of discussions that need to take place, and the, and the League will be um, mediating that conversation. So we think by training and by mobilizing the grassroots to the issues that are specific to a community that we'll be able to facilitate the discussions. Thank you. Do you have a global perspective on civil discourse? Uh, in other words, are we Americans more or less civil in our discourse than those in other countries? Uh, do you have a sense about which country best represents civil discourse or a worst example? Wow, uh, <laughs> that's an interesting question. Um, I had an opportunity to uh, attend a Vital Voices conference in South America of uh, women from South America, Latin America, and the Caribbean, uh, women leaders and non-governmental officials. And it's interesting that you ask that question because they are struggling. A lot of the emerging democracies are struggling with the same issues that we're struggling with, but their perception is that we don't have these problems. One of the biggest questions that arose at that conference is the lack of civility in discussions. In many of those countries, the problem is that they are strongly guided by one party or another and the participation is only through those party affiliations. Uh, so politically, if you don't align yourself with one party or another, the likelihood of your being able to participate is slim to none. The, because of the party system and because of the, the politicking that goes on, there is no real need necessarily for any kind of civility in their discussions. And we're talking about countries where people are actually killed because of their views. 
So the worst case scenario would be countries where, because if you stand up and say something, you're killed. I mean, and then there are real examples of that. The best case scenario, I would still have to say, um, is the United States. That's comforting, <laughs> but. Uh, and you may not agree, and that, that, that's wonderful, but that's, that's my opinion. Here in Minneapolis, we have a hot debate going regarding neighborhood schools uh, versus busing into more fully, in order to more fully integrate the schools. Can bridges among students be built without busing? They can be. Um, and I guess I'll, I'll couch my remarks because as a, a Cleveland, um, Ohio native and, and public school teacher and administrator, I was in a school before busing and a school during busing and a school after busing. And uh, there are advantages to that. There can be bridge building without that kind of facilitation. However, it takes more effort and it takes more money. And it's always been my philosophy that um, we usually take the most expedient solution because anything else that requires a little bit more work, while it may in the long term be more beneficial, we want an immediate answer. And so I think that's what is, you're struggling with right now. Uh, the most expedient way to bridge those gaps between the communities is busing. That's, that is the, the most expedient way to do it. But there are other ways. I mean, there are sporting events. There are community activities that will bring kids together from all over the city. There are all kinds of things that you can do. And there are a lot of cities that have gone through this where you can learn from them. Boston, um, Cleveland is an example. Atlanta is an example. Uh, and, and you could learn from their challenges as well as their successes. So I would, my recommendation would be that um, you support whatever solution is selected, knowing that it will evolve into the best solution for all students. Thank you. And we thank you, Carolyn Jefferson you. Jenkins, for coming to speak to us on this very important subject. And I invite all of you to return on May 20th for the forum uh, at that time. Uh, and we look forward to seeing you. Let us thank Dr. Jen Jefferson Jenkins. <laughs>